0: Uh, You open your Bibles to uh, uh, Acts uh, 13, sorry I'm checking the time, Uh, see how fast I gotta go and how fast you gotta listen, Um, I hope y'all will listen fast, but it seems like I say this a lot, but Acts is full of passages that pivot action and it's been this way and now it's changing and this uh, uh, maybe as the biggest one in Acts, I I don't want to say that definitively, Because a lot built up to this, so there are a lot of changes that prepared for today. But this is the first time the church intentionally sends out what we would today call missionaries. And uh, I think it's, uh, I say intentionally, because the church had sent people out unintentionally. Or actually, uh, they didn't even volunteer to do it. But there was this, this guy named Saul that wanted to persecute the church. And so uh, he, he had, they had Stephen uh, killed, the first martyr of the church. And then he went on a rampage, so they left town and went to a bunch of different places. Well, in God's uh, sense of humor and providence, we come back to Acts 13. And the guy who created the very first involuntary missionary movement, God says, Okay, you like that so much, you get to do this for the rest of your life. And he calls him to be the missionary. So that's kind of a neat little uh, connection there in, in, in Acts 13. But, but there's a lot of things here where the church pivots, and, and, and I, want you to, I want you to catch this today. I, I call this the, the birth of missions, and, and in a sense, it really is. It, it's not, but it is. The, you know the greatest missionary in the world was Jesus Christ, right? God had one son, and he made him a missionary. So he went left heaven, he went to a foreign field, which was earth, and uh, took on their culture, their understandings, their look to... Give them the truth. And, uh, and and so God calls all of us, in in the technical and the real sense of the word, God calls every Christian to missions. We think of missionaries as a special group, and there are some that are called to a special task, but there's no Christian who should not be a missionary. There's no Christian who should not be telling forth the word of God. And what's happened is we've changed the kind of the, the we've changed the terms of people through time, uh, certain time periods and centuries and all of that. So just in general, I'm going to use that word missionary to talk about this calling uh, as the first time the church intentionally set aside some people to go to a place that wasn't where they already were to take the gospel and to establish churches. And so we're going to look at that together. And so here's what I want you to take home with you today. And we're going to read these three verses, very short verses. But missions begins only when the church is disciplined, surrendered, and willing to let go of its best. Now, that'll make a lot more sense at the end than it does now. But missions, its start is when the church is disciplined, is exercised spiritual disciplines, is surrendered to the will of God, and is willing to release the best among them to leave them and to go somewhere else. Let's read these verses together. If you stand with me for one moment, thank y'all for praying together for for uh, the Roman Road. I appreciate that. In fact, uh, uh, Stephen Savan been with us, and and uh, uh, Thursday night they had somewhere to be, and we had to be here for dress rehearsals. So we brought our grandchildren, uh, four and three years old. The four year old will be five in July, and uh, and they, you know, they were here a good long time, and. Janice was taking them out just before the end of where we got to that that night, and that night we only got to the the scene where Jesus was up on the cross. John Jonathan was up here on this big old cross, and they were walking by the open doors in the back, and they just stopped and looked. And and uh, Annabelle says, is "That Jesus on the cross?" And I said, "Well, it's it's a man pretending, portraying Jesus on the cross, but yeah, that's what that is. It's Jesus on the cross." And so there's Bear and Annabel just transfixed. Now, if you can do that for a five- and a three-year-old, imagine what God can do for somebody who needs to know Christ. It's an adult that needs to see that. Amen? So you, you, you bring some folks. Well, let's look at these verses. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, or Manian a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, And Saul, and while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Let's pray. God, in Jesus' name, open our eyes to see what you want us to see uh, as individuals, but Lord, also what the church needs to see. And then, Lord, when we understand your will and your word, may we obey. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Y'all could be seated. Listen, missions happen when we send people away, right? It, we always have to kind of surrender our best, uh, and, and they have to be willing to go, and that's that's a tough thing. Uh, as individuals, it, it's tough to let people go. I think it was Oswald Chambers and in, in my first highest, um, in, in which in, in some in certain passages of certain days of the year. He describes that to follow the will of God never hurts you, but it hurts everyone around you. And, and that concept really got a hold of me because I, I understand that. In other words, if you answer God's call, you never see that as a sacrifice. You never see that as what you're losing or, oh, this is hard. I mean, you know it's hard, but, but you, don't, you don't resent the difficulty so much. But those around you suffer greatly. You know, some of you in this room... Uh, you came to a time of making choices, and you have been privileged to stay where maybe most of your relatives live, family and friends that you grew up with, and you've had that privilege of living your whole life that way, and that is a great privilege. Please don't take that for granted. Um, last week, uh, we sent away our middle daughter and her husband to Costa Rica, um, and uh, I, I should've Set the picture up, but as they're walking away to to go through security check, Janice snapped a picture, and it's it's been on Facebook. But uh, so you can look her up, and you can see it. But but as they're leaving, the our two-year-old granddaughter it looks back over her shoulder like, "Where's Nani and Papa uh, Mac? Why aren't they coming with us?" That's our names, Nanny and Mac, or Mac and Nani, or Mac and Cheese, whichever one you like. But but <laughs> actually, that had not caught on yet. So I, hopefully, it doesn't. But but. Uh, but, but it, it's just that look, and, and, and it just kind of describes her little look. It kind of describes the feelings you have when you send your kids away. And, uh, and, and this past week, uh, if, if you don't know, that Stephen and Savannah were, have been changing the nature of their visa. They were on one kind of visa, now they're getting a clergy visa. And that was weren't sure when exactly that was going to come in, so they've been sitting on hold, kind of getting ready. And uh, last week, around Thursday, Friday, the guy that's helping them said, "Um, I'm going to go get it Monday. I may have a day or two off, but this is close. uh, Because Stephen's right there, and he may want to correct me if I mess it up. Or since Savannah's gone, I'm not in that much danger. But um, Because Savannah would correct me. But anyway, uh, on on Monday, because she's just like me. um, On Monday, uh, he called and said, There is a law that says you have to be out of the country a year before you can come back on this visa. And they never enforce it. But when he went to pick it up, the lady got right here and went, wait a minute. They they haven't been gone for a year. Let me double check this. And sent him away. He said, I don't know what's going to happen. I'll call you tomorrow. Tuesday came, no call. Wednesday came, no call. Thursday comes. You know, we're making plans. Some of them good. Some of them not so good. You know, going a little bit crazy. What's going to happen? You know, and then on Thursday, so Savannah sent out an email to the supporters and said, please pray. We don't know what's going on. So Thursday they called and said, we got it. You can come home. So they're leaving Tuesday. <laughs> All right. So we went from not knowing on, on Thursday to they're going out two days from today uh, to, to fly back. And we'll have another emotional time of saying goodbye. Because no matter what you're committed to, it still hurts, you know. It's still tough to go through, it's just, it helps, because there's coming a day when we'll all be together, and we never have to be apart again. And that's what's real and permanent, so why would you live for the temporary when you can live for eternity? Do you follow me? This is the choice the church has to make in in Acts 13, maybe you've had to make that choice, and maybe not, but... Can you remember when you were like in your maybe twenties, maybe teenagers, twenties, maybe even in your thirties, where there was something you knew that you were going to do or you wanted to do, or this is the direction I'm going, and your parents seemed upset about that? You know, like they don't—they want you to do it, whatever—and you're like, "No, it's a great opportunity. You don't understand." And as a as a young person, you don't understand the grief your parents are going through. And your mom is like, "Why are you going to do this, regular?" But then you say, Mom, i got to do it. And you go, do it. And then you get older and you have kids of your own. And they're going away. And you're going, I you doing it. And you're doing it. And you go, oh, now I know why my mom was crying. Because it, it, it just changes. And maybe you've had that experience on one of those scenarios or the other. And, and I'm overplaying it just to make the point, of course. But, but, but understand that when God calls us to do something, he calls us to do it. to to step away, and and his will has to be greater. We've read these verses. I want you to see in the first verse that God has provided prophets and teachers for the church. Now, just I'm going to run through this as quick as I can. It's important, but it's it's kind of just some technical things you need to know. Number one, a prophet is somebody who tells forth God's word. In this time period, which Acts 13 appears, God is still completing the canon, which is a, a term we use for the Bible the, 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 the Bible that we have from one cover to the other is called our canon. We don't think anything written outside of this was to the level of Scripture, that it's inerrant and infallible. This, what is in here, is inerrant and infallible. It doesn't disagree with itself in any form. 1,400 years, 40-plus authors, doesn't disagree. That's a miracle in itself. And so they were still putting that down. I mean, Saul, who becomes Paul, hadn't even started writing yet. At Acts 13, he hadn't written the first book he would ever write, which was the book of Galatians. That's coming up pretty quickly. But, but there is no New Testament at all at this point. They're just teaching out of the Old Testament. And so God would have to speak directly to these apostles to give them certain words. And in this passage, the Bible doesn't tell us how God spoke to them. But here's something I find interesting in that very first verse. It's the church at Antioch. That's the Gentile church. That's this is the first big Gentile church. Now the first Gentile was Cornelius, but God bust out in the church at Antioch. We remember last chapter, and all these Gentiles are getting saved. And the church at Jerusalem here is man, so a revival's going on in Antioch, and they send Barnabas. Now Barnabas' his real name is Joseph, but he was such an encourager to people. The apostles started calling him the son of encouragement, which is the word Barnabas. So, Encourager goes up to the church. That was a high honor. And in fact, Barnabas is the guy, when everybody was scared of Saul, when God saved Saul, nobody wanted him to come in the church. Like, man, he's coming here as a spy. He's going to figure out what we're doing and he's going to catch us and he's going to kill us. And Barnabas said, no, 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 man, this is real. And he puts his arm around Saul, brings him in, and introduced him to the church. So, Barnabas heads up to Antioch. He sees what's going on. He says, hey, I remember old Saul, you know, nobody liked him, but that dude had it together. He knew the scripture, he was organized, he knew how to explain it. I need to get him to help me teach this brand new church the things they need to know. So he goes and gets Saul, brings him back, and the Bible lets us know for over a year they worked at the church at Antioch explaining and teaching and getting the the doctrine of the church lined up the way it needs to be. And so we come to this verse that at the church, today, God had given prophets. Not only people could tell the future, which is how most people think of it, but people who could tell forth God's truth. And that's what a New Testament prophet does. He takes the truth of God and applies it to a need. Now, if you're doing that, that need is called a weakness or a flaw, right? Usually if you've got a need, there's a, there's a chink in the armor. And so sometimes prophets if, can get in the flesh and they sound mean... When they're taking God's truth and saying, that's wrong, you can't do that, it's what you ought to be doing. But that is the role of a prophet to say, hey, this is bad. Here's what God says, it's what we need to be doing. You can do that better if you stay in, in the spirit. But when, but you know, when people like me are stubborn and don't want to hear what God says, the prophet sometimes has to bear down. But there were prophets in the church, and they're explaining to the church what needs to be done, but they're also teachers. And a teacher makes clear The teachings of Scripture in this case, or or, or whatever it is, I'm a slow processor. I thank God for teachers that explain things to me so I could get a hold of it. That would slow down, back up, re-explain it several times till I could really get a good grip on what what they were trying to say to me. And uh, I'm not the greatest teacher in the world. I can give you a lot of information. But, but there are those that are gifted in breaking that information down and helping us understand it. So this church has people that are telling the truth and people that are explaining it. And then it gives us a roll call of five names. Now this becomes important later. Two of these individuals are very important to understand. The others are pretty interesting in their cells. First of all, they named Barnabas. Duh. He was the guy that the church of Jerusalem sent up there. So Barnabas is there, but also Simeon, who's called Niger. The word Niger is a word that means black. They called him black. For whatever reason. He might have had a really dark beard and hair that we don't know. He could have been African. Uh, Not sure. Now, the modern Zionist, uh, uh, black Zionist, uses first to say that all Jews are, that only Africans are really Jews. They got a real twisted theology. It's not what it's saying. They just had a guy whose nickname was black. We don't know why. Uh, The Bible doesn't describe it, but it's cool. It could have been an African guy there, which would be even cooler still, I think. But Simeon who's called Black, Lucius of Cyrene, and the only we don't know much about that guy, but that word Lucius sounds a lot like Luke. And so people have tried to say that that was Luke, but it's not. Uh, we know it's not, but just somebody read that one. went, ooh, it sounds like Luke. I bet that's who it was, but it's not. Mannion, a lifelong friend of Herod. Now, that's how my version puts it. If your version, it may say uh, from Herod's household or something else. I looked up what does it mean then to be uh, in, in my version, uh, a friend of Herod, what does that mean? And, and the, the word that's in the original language, in the Greek language, it literally means to eat or to suckle at the same mom. In other words, they were raised as one. They were raised like brothers. That's what, it mean. That's what the word means. It, it, it means a very intense, close relationship. Isn't it cool that the guy is trying to destroy the church. God put a guy that's like his brother who becomes a prophet and teacher in the church. It's pretty neat, huh? See, in the, the chapter just before it, the, these Jewish people, they, they're trying to get in good with the evil pol- politician to get favor. And God kills that evil politician. And then the next few verses says, oh, but by the, by the way, a, gay, a guy that was raised with that Herod, he's one of the prophet and teachers in the church. That's pretty cool to me. I don't know about you. And then it says, as subtly as it can, and Saul. That's all it says. (laughs) Because Saul's going to get real important in a minute. I've always wondered, why doesn't the Bible tell us more about all the other apostles? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that, so if you ask me, I'm going to go, I don't know. But I know this. Acts is about what God is doing in the church. And Peter helped start and establish the church. And then Saul helped... Outline all the things that we believe, and became this great missionary. And these are the two big things we have to have a, a legitimate beginning, which we'll see in these verses, and then we have to have our doctrine and theology straight. And Paul, uh, Saul, who becomes Paul, helped us with that. So that's the list. And then in verse two, not only did God provide these prophets and teachers, the church spoke through them to tell God spoke to the church through them to tell us His will. Notice what it says in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord, and it goes on, and fasting. And I, I want you to understand something about this word worshiping, because you may be looking at a version other than the one I'm using. I'm using the ESV uh, if you're interested. You may have a King James, you may have one of the many others there are. So some of yours says, while they were serving the Lord, some say worshiping the Lord. But guess what? Those words mean the same thing. We think of serving as, as doing something. We think of worshiping as doing something, but it's not really work. It's like this. We, 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 we don't understand that word worship. In fact, one of the things that people say is they'll, they'll leave church and they'll say, Oh, man, the worship time was really great this morning. Pastor was okay, but man, the worship time was great. Listen, if what I'm doing is not worship to the Lord, I'm not doing it right. You've got to understand that. If the way you teach your Sunday school class isn't worship to the Lord, you're not teaching right. If the way you clean the bathroom is not worship to the Lord, you're not cleaning it right. Because for the Christian, all ground is holy ground. They're, they're, all bushes are burning bushes. We're not part-time Christians where we serve the Lord here and then do something else there. It's a 100% full-time thing. And our very lives should be worshiped to the Lord. And that's why sin is so horrible for the believer. They're worshiping the Lord. Over in, in Isaiah, it says, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. And we, we see that word in King James, they that wait on the Lord. We think That means we sit on our blessed assurance and we get hit by a lightning bolt, right? That's what we think waiting means. Well, I'm just waiting on the Lord. Tell me what to do. And we, we plop down. I don't think you will just run around doing stuff to be doing it. But I know this. What do you call the person who brings you your food at the restaurant? A waiter or a server—they serve by waiting. You serve God by waiting on Him. You say, "What do you want, Lord?" and then you do it. That is worship. In fact, in Romans twelve one, it says, "I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. This is an acceptable, your acceptable form of worship." You serve God by surrendering all things to God. The Bible says that the offering we ought to give is a sacrifice of praise, of thanksgiving. So this idea of worshiping and serving is, it has the same connotation. And, and, and we got to kind of break out of thing. Worshiping is when I sing a certain song a certain way and I do a certain thing. No, worship is how I live my life. Do I live it for the glory of God? Do I sing whether it's a hymn or a modern song? Do I sing a little ditty or a long detailed theological treatise? To the glory of God. Do I preach to the glory of God? Do I pick up trash to the glory of God? Do I trim the hedges to the glory of God? I live my life to the glory of God. Or I'm not serving and worshiping him as I should. These guys are serving and worshiping the Lord. And notice that too though. Just a kind of a little detail there you might miss. While they were worshiping or serving the Lord. They weren't. Serving or worshiping the church. They weren't asking them what they wanted or needed. They're asking the Lord what he wants and needs from them. Do you get how our focus has become 180 degrees out of phase? Where everything applies to what I like, what I want, what I think, instead of, well, what does God want and what does God like, what does God think? That's worship. This church got it. Antioch is on fire. And their leaders, and of course, now I'm preaching at me and letting you listen in, are doing that. They're worshiping, serving the Lord, asking Him, what is it you want from us? And also fasting. That's a spiritual discipline. And Jesus didn't command it. He assumed it. In uh, Matthew six seventeen, they said, well, why don't your disciples fast? He said, they will when I'm gone. Why would they fast while I'm here? Now it's time for joy. But when I leave, they're going to fast a lot. He he assumed they were going to fast because there's a need for it. And by the way, that's a discipline that we've lost in the church a lot. We need to be fasting. Uh, I I wish I had time to go into that more, but I, I really don't. And then it says, while they were doing that, they're serving God, they're fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for a work to to which I've called them. Barnabas and Saul didn't show up and go, hey, I think God wants us to be missionaries. In the context here, we're not quite sure whether Barnabas and Saul knew beforehand or not. They may have. They may have had that sense that God was calling them out. But the church sent them out. And you'll see that in verse 3 very strongly. The church is the, the sending agent of the missionary. And, and again, we kind of get this out of, out of phase. Our modern way of doing things, we have guys who feel called to missions, they go. Uh, when Dr. Randy Spencer was here uh, uh, recently, uh, he was saying how they're getting students now at Liberty who've never even been a part of a church and they want to become missionaries and pastors. Because they got saved somewhere else, you know, through TV, books, somewhere else. Never been a part of a church. And, and he said, it, it's just crazy. And He's trying to get them to implement, no, you got to be in a church before we'll even let you in the program um, kind of idea. Don't hold me on those details, but he was just saying it's a real problem today. But the Holy Spirit speaks, but notice this. He says, set aside Barnabas and Saul. He didn't say, you got some leftovers there in the back, aren't doing much. He asked for the two guys that are the, the principal human agents, prime movers in the church of Antioch. God was already doing a work when they showed up. It didn't start with Barnabas and Saul. But when they got there, man, they, they started getting it in order and all of that. And they were... Can you imagine? You're, you've got these guys that have taught you everything you know about Christ. They've only been there a year. And God says, okay, send them out. Now, I described that earlier about the kids going to different places in the world for, for the cause of the gospel. You know, the tennessee's go, um, don't you got someone else you can use? Isn't there somebody else could go? God asked this church to send the best they had. These guys are the best. But did you hear what I read to you in verse 1? They've been working with some other dudes, and there's three other guys there that can handle it. God's always supplying before the need. Whenever you hit a need, God, that doesn't take God by surprise. He's been preparing for you the answer to your need before you get there. That's really hard for us to see because we can't see the future and we don't understand everything with the same understanding God has. But let me just make you a promise. All you have needed, his hand hath provided. Since we're using words we don't use anymore, and I actually have not used the word alas in the past month. I just was joking. But the hymn writer said, what I have needed, God's hand has already provided. It's already there. I don't even have to ask. It's there. The problem is I'm not paying attention to God. And so the Holy Spirit says, set apart. That means divide them out. Make them special. These guys are going. So that's the call. And the call comes through the church. Because there is no planning of a church and all that without, without a church's authority behind it. And I I truly believe that. In verse 3, not only do we see that God provides prophets and teachers and pronounces His will, but the church acknowledges God's choice. In verse 3, and after fasting and praying. They just said they were praying and fasting. Now they said, and after fasting and praying. They're like, we want to make sure this is God. You know that guy who fell off a cliff and... He was terrified him, and as soon as he fell off, he saw this bush growing out the side, and he grabbed the bush, and he's hanging there, and he's going, help, 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 nobody's coming, It's getting tired, he grabs with the other hand, oh man, he's trying to pull himself up, and he can't, and finally, as all of our case, he's desperate, and he finally asked God, and he said, God, send me some help. And a voice from heaven audibly said, let go. He said, wait a minute, is that you, God, really? He said, "This is me, let go. The man said, is there somebody else up there I could talk to? <laughs> Isn't that what we do? God told his church, let go. And so they said, just to make sure, we're going to fast and pray a little bit. Make sure we heard that right. And so they do that. They, they confirm it because you've got to stay in touch. But then notice what it, they did. Verse 3. They laid their hands on them. Now, we do that, don't we? When we ordain somebody as a deacon or pastor, we lay hands on them. And it's kind of a symbolic thing. And nothing wrong with it. It's a great thing to do. This is not an ordination like we would understand it of sorts. But I wondered, what does that mean? So, again, I did a little bit of research to look it up. And the the force of this word is this. They transfer the authority of the church to these two men to take the authority of the church somewhere else. I kind of mentioned that earlier. But back there in Matthew, here's where the authority comes from. Jesus says to Peter, you're the rock and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what you open on earth will be opened in heaven. And what you close on earth or lock on earth will be locked in heaven. See, if Peter had gone to Cornelius and said, I'm sorry, you're not meeting my religious uh, Jewish idea of cleanliness. So I'm not even going to talk to you. You and I couldn't be saved today because Peter would have shut the door and it would have been shut in heaven. Because that's the problem. Jesus don't make up stuff. He tells the truth. But Peter in obedience, the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came on the Samaritans in Acts 8. And the Holy Spirit came to the Gentiles in Acts 10. And brother, it's on. And we come to Acts 13 in the church with the authority that is given by Christ. transferred that authority to two individuals to go into the world and start new churches wherever they went. It is an an, an intentional transfer of authority from the church to these men that you can now exercise the authority of the church to to go and to spread the gospel and to start new churches. And then the last word there is also very important. I've read this a million times. This passage is very important to me because it describes our missiology. It describes our understanding of church. But as I read it, some words jumped out and it says, and sent them off. Now, in my English, it's just like, and send them off. Like, okay, bye, I see you, poof, and you're gone, right? This has another very literal meaning. I make it sound like you, you can't get this. You can get this just like I did. It, it's, it, you don't have to know different languages to even get a hold of this. It literally means they let go. They didn't tie a rope around them and hold a string on them. They didn't pull them back. They didn't say, okay, we'll go a little ways and come back and let us know. It means they turned them loose they said go get them tiger go get them they just let go they said you got the authority take off and they went out see that's what we got to be willing to do we got to be willing to release and i'm glad this church has done that they've done that in the past what we do we release that authority for them to do what god's called them to do and that's what happened here and notice though Just the first phrase in verse 4, we didn't read it earlier. I'm not going to preach on it, but check it out. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. The church sent them, but it was by the will of God and the Holy Spirit. So, these men are sent by the church and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and the church cooperates with that and agrees with God and does what God asks them to do. You catch that? That's when missions started right there. That's when missions, the way we understand it today, started. It started before the world began, when God had one son and made him a missionary. And he made us anyway, and Jesus had to put on the form and the culture of this world and come and reveal God to us. But this church kicks the vision and says, sure, if that's what God wants, we give God whatever he desires, and they gave away their best. Well, how can you apply all this in your life this week? I've I've been rushing through because our time was short. Well, first of all, you need to develop spiritual disciplines in your life of reading your Bible, praying, and fasting. You need to to daily read the Bible. You say, I, I don't get it. Well, if you start reading it, you might get it. If you're saved, the Holy Spirit will help you get it. And if you're not saved, you'll never get it. But if you're saved, you have the person of the Holy Spirit living in you, and he'll help you understand it. So start reading it. Prayer. Just start talking to God. Tell him what you need. God will help teach you as you pray as well. God can't talk to us if we're not reading his word and praying. It is in those disciplines that God can speak to us. And as a church, if we're not doing that, he can't speak to us. And then I would say fasting. You need to learn how to fast. There's plenty of things out there about it. I'll just give you my own personal story of fasting. I'm, I'm a diabetic. As you know, have been one for 52 years. And back 30 years ago, actually over 35 years ago now, just to be honest, I was in a class on prayer. And the professor, whom I affectionately refer to as the wisest man in the world, Dr. Burchett, had an assignment where we're going to fast a half a day. And he was teaching us how to get into the word and prayer during a half a day of fasting. Now, by half a day, he meant you could eat supper on one day and supper on the next day, but don't eat anything in between. So you've skipped two meals, so to him that was a half day. To me, that was an eternity, but to him it was a half day. Well, back then, the way I treated my diabetes, I know my pump is beeping sometimes, like I, I, I almost got it figured out now, so it hadn't beeped today so far. Thank the Lord. Um, but um, that's the. Uh, uh, Orthodox way to do that, by the way. But anyway, um, my relatives are drunk Irish Catholic, so I got the right. But anyhow, the, um, so, so I'm looking at that, and the way I treated my diabetes back then, I had two different kinds of insulin. I mixed them together in a syringe. I took a shot once a day, sometimes twice a day. And then once that insulin's in, baby, it's working. And so there would come a time, and I knew when that time hit, that I had to eat something. So, I had, to go, I had to take that shot on a time, and then I had to eat on certain intervals. And, and that's how I understood it back then. And so I raised my hand and thought, huh, getting out of this one. You know, sort of like when they call you for jury duty and you try to get out of it. So I said, Oh, uh, yeah, Dr. Richette, I'm a diabetic, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, so I can't really fast. So, can you tell me what you want me to do? Can I do something different? And this is a quote, and I'll never forget what he said. Because he didn't get excited, I was sitting to his left. I I can still see him go and look at me. And he said this, Stuart, there's something spiritual about fasting that science knows not of. He talked like that. He would say, alas. (laughs) And I went, oops. (laughs) I look like an idiot. (laughs) And then he just stood there and stared at me. Until, so, you know, he knew I got what he said. Like, you ain't getting out of this one, boy. And then he turned around and said, well, I'll let the doctors in the room speak. Because we had medical doctors going to the mission field and they were getting their theological training. So, Dr. Peter Wong from Houston, Texas. When, I, when he got up to introduce himself, this Chinese guy stood up and he said, Hi, I'm Peter Wong from Houston, Texas. We went, whoa, that was weird. So Dr. Bu- Dr. Wong looked at me and he said, what kind of insulin are you taking? And I told him the two types. He said, don't do that one. Cut the other one in half. Take your sugar. You'll be all right. And he was right. So when important things are coming up in my life, I now can fast. And now I've got tools that allow me to do that a lot. I fasted before I asked Janice to marry me. I fasted before we make decisions like come in places like this. Well, one time I realized that food was controlling me instead of me controlling food, so I quit eating for 40 days. So if you say I can't do it, come talk to me. Because there's something spiritual about it that science knows not of. Just an encouragement. Number two, give God the best in your life. And by that, I don't mean actually hand it to Him. I mean be willing to give it. Just say, God, you can have everything. You can, give, you can have the best of what I have. Because the next one's related to it then let go of what God asked for. If you surrender everything, see, when you come to salvation, you don't say, hey, God, you can have all this except this, and I'm going to keep this for me. No, you surrender everything to him. And if he asked of you something that you didn't think you were willing to give, I thought you were a living sacrifice. I thought you laid your body on an altar and said you can have all of me. See, if you're going to get on an altar, you better prepare for that altar to get hot. Because it's going to warm up and He's going to consume that sacrifice of yourself to Him. But for His glory, and we wind up in an eternity celebrating what He did through us. Because we're a living sacrifice. He doesn't kill us, He brings more life to us than we've ever had before. But we are totally surrendered and dedicated to Him. So let God for what God asks you for. Don't cling to it. Like we'd like to do with our kids. It's pretty important to us, isn't it, our children? Well, it's coming today. Somewhere way back there when I realized that you can have it all, but you can't have it all at the same time. So when I come on something, God says, "Uh uh-uh. I say, okay, well, that's what heaven's for. Because in heaven, it only adds, it never subtracts. It's the perfect gifts in heaven. So I won't mistreat it, I won't misuse it, and I'll be able to glorify God with it in heaven. And so that's when I can get it. And I know that. And you ought to live that way, because in a hundred years you're going to be dead. And then what will it matter what you clung to on earth? Psalm 73, the psalm writer says, Whom have I in heaven but Thee? And on earth there is nothing I desire except you.